In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we come to a close of this session this evening, we ask your blessing not only on what we discuss and hear today or tonight, but also as we go forward, because it is something that we feel that we need to live. The gospel is only the word of God when it is lived in and through the hearts of all mankind. So we ask your blessing on our efforts so that we might hear what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. So we praise you and thank you in all things, in Jesus' name. Tonight, as I just mentioned, is our last class. In some ways, I hate to see it end. In other ways, I'm thankful. Uh, but it's been a, a great session, I feel, and uh, I hope you got something out of it. Tonight, our structure will be pretty much the same as it has been all along. Um, one of the things that I really want to get into is the summary of the gospel so that you have sort of uh, at least some capsule size of it in, in your mind. And then I want to get into a discussion of uh, what you would like to discuss next uh, session, which begins in, in September, late September. But before that, we really have to talk about the resurrection. That's the essence of chapter 24, the last chapter in the gospel. And it is uh, something that is extremely important, or should be. And yet, I dare say a lot of people um, really don't understand the essence of the resurrection. They are very familiar with the story of Christ's passion and death and his suffering and the crucifixion and so forth. But when it comes to the resurrection, uh, my experience has been many people sort of yeah, gloss right over it because they just don't understand and they don't know what questions to ask. And I think it's something that it's sad because the resurrection is the essence of Christianity. St. Paul tells this, and I want to read this so that I'm accurate here. It says, if there is no resurrection, because remember, I think we've talked about the fact that the Pharisees believed in life after death and some form of, of um, revitalization of life, but they never put it into any formula. But the Sadducees, uh, which was an opposing sort of political party within the Sanhedrin, uh, was vehemently opposed to any idea of life after death. And so there was always this tension between these two groups. What uh, St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ himself has not been raised. And, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is void of content and our faith is empty. If Christ was not raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Which is kind of a serious statement. And he's really talking about the resurrection of all humanity at the end of the age or at the end of time. That is, the all, humani all humanity who have died in the good graces and the faith of God. So it's a, a little different than the resurrection of Christ himself. But 
The only difference is Christ was the first. And so far as we know, the only person who has been resurrected from the dead. Now, when I say that, I always generally get some hands, and that's why I looked around to see any hands, because they'll always say, well, what about the guys and the gals that Christ raised from the dead while he was here on earth? Not the same. They were returned to their natural human life. Resurrection from the dead really means something entirely different. It means that for human beings, as well as Christ, that we appear before God in judgment. And then we wait till the end of the age, and hopefully, if we have been felt or deemed uh, to be uh, holy enough, then we will be resurrected as Christ was. Not to the same degree, obviously, because Christ was still God and divine. We always have that difference there. But the whole idea of Christ coming to earth in the first place was to die in satisfaction of that perfect offering to a perfect God that I talked about last week. And then the results of that would be the resurrection, the fact that Humanity could then return to the Father and be united with the Father. And of course, our creed, the Nicene Creed, talks about the resurrection of the dead at the end. Um, and a lot of people thought, eh, well, don't quite understand that, but I don't want to ask either. You know, I just uh, rather play dumb about it. And that's unfortunate because. Our religion is so rich and so full of beautiful beliefs that enrich or should enrich our lives, and yet so few people take advantage of really understanding them. And that's, of course, what this class is all about, trying to develop uh, a better understanding of what our faith is. But the whole idea of the resurrection of Christ was to acknowledge the acceptance by the Father of Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of all humanity. It's like the stamp of approval. Jesus went through this. First of all, he went through the the whole idea of being born as a human being, um, living for 30 years in a very uh, normal way, normal for that time and culture, and then three or so years of preaching and teaching and miracles and arguments and fights and everything else with the the Pharisees particularly and others, Uh, and then eventually dying a horrible, horrible death after a lot of suffering for the whole benefit of mankind. And it was the offering of something that no one else could give because no one else was divinely perfect in the way that Christ was. So he did all of that. And, of course, the whole idea of the resurrection, as I said, was a sign of God's acceptance and approval of that sacrifice, opening the door 
for all mankind to return to the Father at their death or at the end of time. Okay. Up to that point, up to the point of Christ's death and resurrection, all of those who died in the good faith of God could not enter heaven because that price, that sacrifice, had not been paid yet. And so when we talk about uh, in the Apostles' Creed uh, that he rose again from the dead and the same, well, he descended into hell for three days. A lot of people say, you know, what does that all mean? Well, if you look at the footnotes of your Bible or in some other authorized book, authoritative book, you will find that what that means is that during that three uh, days, parts of three days, not 72 hours, but parts of three days, that Christ was dead before the resurrection was the time he spent in gathering all of these people from this shale, as the Jewish people would have called it, uh, the abode of the dead, but not Hades, uh, which would have been comparable to our hell. Uh, these are people who died, but in the good graces of God, but could not enter heaven because that price, that sacrifice, had not been paid yet. Yes? Yeah. Now that's in the Apostles' Creed, not in the Nicene Creed. Yeah. Well, the Apostles' Creed, the difference between the two, uh, and that's what Maria's asking, why is it in one and not in the other? I think basically that's your question. And the Nicene Creed is a creed of beliefs. The Apostles' Creed is a creed of devotion. All right. And it's not that they contradict each other, but the Apostles' Creed was originally intended for children because it's a simplified form, but it does cover all the basics. You know, it 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 says he descended into hell. In the Nicene Creed, it says that uh, I have to stop and think now. Uh, a resurrection of the body, you know, which is sort of the, the opposite side of the coin in that respect. But I think if you look in uh, any of the prayer books at the Apostles' Creed, you will see he descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Would you restate the last couple of things you said? What I heard was that Jesus was descended to, to hell to gather together all those souls who were waiting. And then he didn't say what happened. And then they have to wait till the end of time? No, no, no. No, no. They could, then they entered heaven. Yeah. No, it was it was at that same time. We don't know the timing there, but uh, presumably that is. In but, fact, but the resurrection of the dead is at the end of the world. Yes, okay. yes. But we go to heaven when we die, assuming. Okay. At least I am. I don't know about you. <laughs> so why do we care? Why do we now, care? Yeah, where you and me, we're not. 
likely to live to the end of the world. I hope not. <laughs> no, it's bad enough now. But if we really don't, is there any reason to care about the resurrection of the dead at the end of the world? Uh, Why is it important? Well, to an individual, it's generally not important. That's right. Uh, but to the church and to the greater picture, it is important. Particularly, well, the thing is, you see, so many people, and particularly when you get into the second book of, of Thessalonians, the people there were very worried about what happened to the people that died before Christ came. You know, their ancestors, the good people. And Christ tells us, or told them through the apostle Paul who wrote that book, is that those people will be included because Christ's death and resurrection was for the benefit of all people living before him at the time of his, you know, and forever after. So it's the ever after that we have to be at least aware of. Yes, Derek? I'm a real tonight on this, but I seem to remember that when he died, Yes. With the resurrection, the body is returned. Uh, it will be returned after the resurrection at the end. Yes. Yes. And I think, I don't know. You've got two things going here. You've got your soul and your body. <laughs> all right. Let's get, let's get more interesting all the time. When you die, when when we die, I don't mean just you. When we die, our soul goes to heaven for judgment, and then hopefully the pearly gates, you know, are opened and they say welcome in, or otherwise, you know, go down below. Our bodies are in the grave, or the crypt, or whatever. At the end of time. There is a reuniting of the soul and the body. Well, Christ also had the ability to disguise or, or to not permit somebody that he appeared to to recognize him right away, such as Mary Magdalene. She did not recognize him right away, even though, as you just pointed out, he did have the scars uh, on his hands and feet and side, of course, and but. Did he have any scars on his forehead or head from the crown? Uh, did he have, you know, it looked like he just took a nice shower and and got fresh clothes from where? We don't know. See, there's a lot of things that we don't know, and that is called faith. Okay, you got to accept those sort of details in faith. We were always taught also that at the time of death we are judged immediately. Yes. And Personal judgment, and at the end of the world, general judgment. Yes. Well, the, the at the end of the world, according to several books, uh, everyone will know why everyone else either got into heaven or didn't get into heaven. All right. There's a general accounting, and so everything that, huh? 
well, I don't know. I think it'll be the great revealing, you know. So be careful, boys and girls. <laughs> the great revealing at the end of the world. Well, who you cares? Know? I mean, you know, if you're there. <laughs> well, that's right. Who should care? But the time to care is now. When you can do something about it, say. Yeah. Yeah. After you die, it's a little too late. Okay? After you die, it's a little too late. Yeah. yeah. The time to care. And that's even an important point, though. Though we are laughing and joking about it, which is fine. Uh, we can't do anything once we die. We can't do anything about mending problems. Uh, saying, I'm sorry. Talking to people that we refuse to talk to or whatever. The time to take care of those problems is now. Yes. Uh, that is not for us to know. All right, that's just the way we were told that it's going to be. And not just by the church, but by Christ himself. Interpolating, um, interpreting, interpreting some of the, you know, the teachings. We are told that there will be a final resurrection and a final judgment for everybody. Yeah. The lambs and the goats, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, Frank. Oh, it wasn't me. <laughs> so many brownie points. Now, 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 well, uh, what's that? Well, Frank raised a good point, though. Purgatory. There is a purgatory. And the fact is, as we've talked before, God the Father and the whole Trinity is divinely perfect. One of the laws of perfection is that a divine God cannot live with sinful humanity. All right. And therefore, sinful humanity cannot come back into heaven. Christ is paying the major price through his death and resurrection of that. But there is always a little bit left for mankind to take care of in order to get back into the good graces of God. In fact, he tells us in the uh, his letter to the Colossians, I make up in my body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And that sounds a little strange, but that's in there exactly in those words. And what it really means is that we all have to make re uh, um, recompense or rect I can't even get the word out, uh, payback, let's say, for sins that we have committed, all right? There is something that we have to do in order to take care of that. Well, if we die without having taken care of this, as long as it is not a mortal situation, mortal sin, or an extremely serious sin, then there is... We have died in the, in the good graces of God in a very general way, 
but we still cannot go to heaven right away because of this law of perfection. And therefore, we go to what we have labeled purgatory, the word comes from purgation or purging, of whatever is left that we didn't take care of. All right, And we have no idea what that is, where it is, or how long it is. So it is a way of purging ourselves so that the soul can then be made perfect, spiritually perfect, and return to the Father. Now, I can't go any further because that's as far as the church will really talk about. There is nobody that's come back to tell us about purgatory, so we don't have any uh, better details. Okay. <laughs> any other questions? I hate to ask, but... <laughs> well, cremation um, is now permitted. For a long time, it was forbidden. Um, I personally don't like the idea, but the church is allowing it simply out of convenience. Um, as you know, many of the uh, deep southern states do not permit burial below ground because of the high water table, and they are running out of space above ground for cemeteries. And so they are... Uh, encouraging cremation, and the church is accepting that for that reason. Okay. The thing that the church really is against is scattering the ashes. They feel that out of respect for the dignity of the human being and the human body that God created, that the ashes should all be buried together. You know, and, and yet I've had in fact, I, one of my best friends, his, his ashes were scattered at sea. Yes? Well, that's right. But that's that's entirely different. That's, you know, yeah. Or, you know. Or, in the resurrection, the body will be glorified. If we've lost our arm, it will be there. I hope so. So the cremation... It's the same. I always understood the church was against cremation because at one time it was thought that I'm going to get God, I'm going to be cremated and scattered, and he won't be able to restore my body. Well. Uh, that, was a, that was a belief that some people had in the church that was against cremation. Uh, no. The church was against cremation for uh, many reasons. You know, there was cults and all of the other things, too. But you have, for example, in 9-11, when the two towers in New York collapsed. The mere pressure of all of that debris coming down created such a tremendous heat that many of those bodies were never recovered because they disintegrated. Well, that's beyond the control of anyone. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that's that's the case. Uh, yes, sir? Uh, yes, that's true, but for some reason or other, I just don't like the idea for myself. So uh, we won't tell you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a big F on that 
not very definite and not very specific. Yes, what Bill just mentioned was in the book of Revelation there is mention of a second um, second judgment was really what it is. A second judgment. And from my understanding of the book of Revelation and I've taught it two or three times uh, it is not it is a way of hoping and against hope that some of those people who died without belief in Christ but still in a in a you know less than holy but a good graces and the good graces of God you might say still would turn and have an opportunity to accept Christ um it's not exactly the same as uh, a second judgment at the end, you know, or a second judgment of when we die immediately. The whole idea is in the teachings of Christ and the teachings of the church is that when we die, we are judged immediately. And so we know whether where we're going, okay? It's heaven, hell, or purgatory. Okay? No other place. And... Of course, hell is final, purgatory is temporary, and heaven is the ultimate goal. Be careful. Be careful. You're, you mentioned it. You're skating on thin ice. Well, I just don't want to get into that subject. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You know, uh, just for my own benefit, I went back and read all of the Gospels today, the, the portion in reference to the resurrection, because they are all so different. I don't know if any of you took the time to go and read the resurrection stories in all four Gospels, but they're all very, very different. Not that they contradict each other, uh, but they have... Um, Different stories. One, you know, something is in one gospel that is not in another, or the other three, whatever. Um, they're so different. But then you've got to think about it. We've had two thousand years to have the church sift all of this information and kind of explain things to us that I'm trying to explain to you tonight. In between the little uh, innuendos and jokes here. Uh, but the apostles and the disciples, immediately after Christ's death and resurrection, didn't know what to make of it. They really didn't understand, even though Christ talked about it several times. And even though it was mentioned by others in the Old Testament, they still really didn't understand the significance of that. And so you can understand why even 30 or 40 years later when these Gospels were written they still weren't fully understanding of all that 
the resurrection means. St. Paul did, and Paul is talking uh, in many of his letters in great depth about the resurrection. But the gospel writers never did. Now, we don't know if it is they truly didn't understand or they were going in accordance with the writing techniques of that time that sort of talked about things as if they were right there when it happened and these books were written down immediately. Uh, we call that real time in computer language. Uh, and most of the Gospels are written as if they were written immediately. In fact, uh, two of them, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark, actually make it sound like the resurrection happened, I mean, the uh, ascension of Christ into heaven actually happened on the eve of the resurrection. It was all done in one day. That is not the case. The church tells us there was an interval of approximately 40 days. And uh, here is a case where 40 days really means 40 days because it was from Passover to the feast of, um, well, it was Passover to the feast of Pentecost, which is 50 days, and this was 10 days before that, that it happened. All right. Now, Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. Uh, it was a harvest holiday, and people from all over uh, Palestine, Israel, and the surrounding areas, all the Jewish people would gather for the festival. All right, so uh, God the Father took that particular time to send the Holy Spirit because it was something that would then be disseminated and got out to people all over, not just those in Jerusalem, but people from all over um, the Eastern world of that time and culture. But you got to think about the whole idea of the resurrection not being fully understood for a long time. In fact, we have another example, the cross itself. The cross was, you know, the nice crosses that we have. I don't know there's one over there that's a little extra fancy, but the crosses that we have uh, were never used, such as that one is up there, as an ornament. People would never wear a cross around their neck because it was a sign of degradation and uh, punishment and sorrow and bitterness. It wasn't until the third or fourth century that the cross was then kind of accepted as a symbol. Prior to that time, you would use a fish or the emblem of a fish, you know, just the outline. And you see that on the back ends of cars a lot these days, indicating that the occupant uh, or the owner is at least a Christian, right? But for three or four hundred years, the cross was never a symbol of Christianity, simply because they just didn't understand the ramifications of what Christ did. It took a lot of thinking and a lot of theology and theologians and arguments and debates. Uh, the whole idea of the Council of Nicaea, there's two councils of Nicaea, but most of those um, 
two councils, ecumenical councils, were concerned concerning the dual nature of God, dual nature of Christ, I should say, as both God and man. A lot of people believed he was one or the other, but not both. And the church was trying to get across, finally, that he was both God and man, and it was necessarily so for the purpose that he came to earth. But it took a long time for this to happen. You get into the Acts of the Apostles, and it sounds like everything happened within a few weeks after Christ's death and resurrection and the ascension. And it didn't. It took 40 years for the events that are depicted in the Acts of the Apostles to really take place and for people to understand them. So we've got to actually put ourselves back into the scene when we are trying to understand something that happened back in that time and place. Any other questions about the resurrection? It is something I'm afraid to let you ask. <laughs> yes. I was, I was disappointed in chapter 22. It's anticlimactic. It's, what? Is that all? Yes. And, and, and you know, like John is missing with Peter. Yes. It, You're right. Well, see, I, I hope I explain most of that. Yeah, I, mean, I understand. I understand. Like, yes. My reaction, my first reaction was, I should have done what you did, to go back and read the other three. But yes. I'm just saying, it's, I think uh, everything else looks so good coming up to that point. I mean, uh, I'm in a hurry to get this done. Well, I've got to write these other acts now. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah, well, for your penance, you'll uh, read the other uh, three Gospels. <laughs> okay, but I, I would recommend that all of you do that. During Holy Week, it's not really long, but read the, you know, read the last three or four chapters of all four Gospels. It will really help you to better understand and put yourself into the scene. And what I did as part of this last paper that I'm sending, handing out to all of you, and I hope you've got a copy of it here. I'm talking about Easter. So many people have asked me in the past, well, where did the word Easter come from? And frankly, no one has a very good, solid, definite answer. You know, it <coughs> came from the goddess of spring. All right, well... That, that tells me that uh, you're sort of mixing uh, uh, mythology and so forth in with uh, faith, and that bothers me a little bit. But nevertheless, um, and then there's this other idea of a misunderstanding of the uh, high German word for dawn. And uh, I left it out when I typed this because I don't think anybody would be able to pronounce it anyways. Okay. So it's important here. Then the date of Easter. Originally in the early church, they followed the Jewish traditions. Passover is always on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, which is the first um, month of springtime. Okay. Um, because 
the Emperor Constantine changed uh, the Sabbath for Christians from Saturday to Sunday. And because Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, Sunday, and because Pentecost was on the first day of the week, Sunday, Constantine decreed that hereafter, hereafter meaning the year 313 AD, which was the Edict of Milan, that all worshiping in satisfaction of the Sabbath laws for Christians would be on Sunday. And so Easter then went through this turbulence of, well, when do we celebrate Easter? And that came out in the Council of Nicaea also. It is calculated to be the first Sunday after the first full moon after the 21st of March, the vernal equinox. Okay. Passover is on the evening of the full moon. And so quite often you will have Passover and Good Friday or Passover and Easter Sunday being at the same time. Passover is not only on Friday. It can be any day of the week. And it follows that whatever the first uh, full moon after the vernal equinox, the 21st of March, uh, that is the night that Passover is celebrated. I'm sorry? Could be, yeah. It can be any day of the week. All right. Easter duty. A lot of people have totally forgotten about this. And if you had, haven't been to Catholic school and taught by the nuns, Sister Mary Agnes would have beat this into your head. But um, Easter duty, the obligation established in the Fourth Lateran Council, 1215, that the faithful, all Catholics, were obliged to confess their sins and receive Holy Communion at least once a year during the Easter season. The Easter season runs from the first Sunday of Lent to the to Trinity Sunday, okay, which is about six or seven weeks after Easter. So there's a period of almost four months that a Catholic, to be in good standing, must go to confession and communion uh, during that period of time. That's part of Canon Law 920. All right. And then I've given some additional readings here that I would hope that you would take advantage of during the uh, Holy Week because it talks about uh, prim primarily about the resurrection from the dead. All right. Now, let's go to your book here, because we have this beautiful story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And throughout the Gospels, there are various stories as to how the resurrection was accepted. And you can tell in almost all of them that the people really didn't understand. Even though 
they remembered, oh yeah, Christ did talk about rising from the dead, but I never knew exactly what he meant, you know. So we have this beautiful story here, and I just like to uh, talk about it. Now that <clears throat> very day, in other words, on the Sunday of the resurrection, two of them, doesn't name them, two of them were going to a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus. And many people pronounce it in many different ways, and I don't think it makes a lot of difference. And they were conversing about all the things that occurred. And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself drew near and walked with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. This is as we mentioned before, he was in a glorified state, and he kept their eyes clouded from recognizing him, him, him until uh, a little later. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? And they stopped and looked downcast, and one of them named uh, Cleopas said to him in reply, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know of the things that have taken place there in these days? And Jesus replied to them, what sort of things? And they said to him, the things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. How our chief priests and rulers both handed him over to a sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is now the third day since this took place. So this is not on the same. Well, it's the third day after his death. Yes. So that would work out. Some women from our group, however, have astounded us. And they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find the body. They came back and reported that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who had announced that he was alive. Then some of those with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women had described, but him they did not see. And so Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are! How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke of! Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted the scriptures to them, referring to, oh, I'm sorry, he interpreted to them what referred to him in all the scriptures. As they approached the village to which they were going, he gave the impression that he was going further, but they urged him to, quote, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And it happened that while he was with them at, took, at table, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. And with that, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he vanished from their sight. And then they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we spoke to us, while he spoke to us on the way? and opened the scriptures to us. So they set out at once and returned to Jerusalem where they had found together, gathered together the eleven and those with them who were saying, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. 
Then the two recounted what had taken place on the way and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, I asked you in your homework assignment if uh, you had found a statement that sort of summarized something that I said back in our first lecture. Anyone uh, recognize that? Or did you not attempt to? <laughs> Been there, done that, but couldn't remember, eh? Okay. You remember this? You all have a copy of it? I'm sure you do. What Jesus said in here, that he went back and talked about all of the scriptures that referred to him. Now he's talking about the Old Testament, obviously. All right? And the whole purpose of this little diagram here is to kind of indicate how all of the books of the Old Testament point to the event of Jesus Christ. And that is the way we should read the Old Testament. Not necessarily going through with a magnifying glass and looking for any reference because in some of the books it's rather difficult. You have to kind of put them together and look at them as a unit before you begin to see this pointing effect of all of the scriptures of the Old Testament pointing to the event of Christ. And what I have done in this paper here that you, your handout for the, this evening, there's four of them. Three from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Okay. And there, of course, there are many, many more, but I didn't think you'd probably go through the effort of reading them anyway, so I only put down four. But there are plenty of references in the Old Testament that either talk directly about the Messiah or refer to it in some way or other. And that's, of course, was always intended. Any other? Yes, Frank. Yes. Well, you're right. Frank's point was that the Jewish people who were waiting for the Messiah were sort of led to believe by the temple rulers that he was going to be a military figure and operate somewhat in the way that King David did way back a thousand years before that time and unite against all of the foreign people that were in Palestine at the time and rid themselves of the Jewish people. I'm, I'm sorry, the Romans. Um, of course, that wasn't, that was far from what 
God intended. Um, there was no such thing in, in God's mind that they would oust the Romans and then restore uh, Israel to the glory that it had back in the days of King David. Um, but that was what they were sort of led to believe. And you're right. If that is what they were thinking and that was in their mind, when they saw this itinerant preacher, uh, it would be rather difficult to shift gears and start accepting him right away. So that's what led, led to the confusion and the time it took them to start really analyzing all of this and putting it together. However, all of those same people that promoted the idea of um, the Messiah being a military figure were the same ones who were educated enough to know better. And if they had really studied the Old Testament and had with an open mind, they would see that this was not what was intended by God. Not entirely. Not entirely. Uh, Maria's whole statement, I think, is in the back of everybody's mind at some point in time. Why were the scriptures not more specific? But you see, the scriptures came at different times from different people, from different points of view. Well, I think in the same in the same way that he spoke to them in parables, he could have just blurted out, you know, his statement, but the culture would not have accepted that at the time. The culture was such that they spoke in story form a great deal, and they liked this idea. They also spoke in debate form. And that was something that was always appealing, particularly the Greeks. Um, we get a lot of that when we read Greek philosophy. All right. So the culture of the time had all of these different uh, bits of information feed in to the various gospel writers, as well as those who wrote, like Paul did, the, the epistles. Uh, they came from all different points of view. Yes, but we see what what was the culture at that time wasn't a culture a thousand years later, nor two thousand years later. So if anything was said, this is the one and only right way to think, would that have appealed to people later down the road? No. What he gave us was all of these various different stories which, and I, I do want to correct one word you used, and that was contradict, because I agree that they're confusing, but I don't think they contradict each other, really, in the, in the sense of contradiction as we think of it today. Uh, but I think we, have a, we are able to take the same stories that were written 2,000 years ago and see how they applied to everybody all the way down through the last 2,000 years and still are meaningful today. Uh, I don't know if that was God's intention, but it seemed to be in a way that that's the way he left it. And then 
he gave us theologians. Somebody just asked me the other day, why don't we have any more prophets like they did in the Old Testament? I said, we do. They're called theologians. We're, they're called the church. The church now speaks for God in the way that the prophets spoke for God back in the time between uh, King David and the Babylonian captivity, uh, that 500-year period. After that, they slowly died out. And you didn't have any more prophets after the 4th century, the 5th century, really. So I can't give you, you know, a, a quote a chapter and verse of any book that's going to give you an answer. They have faith, but they don't have theology. And there is a big difference. Those splinter groups, even the Baptists, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the country, uh, they do not have theology. They don't have any one group of people, like we have the hierarchy, uh, that say this is the proper interpretation of this confusing set of books. Um, so I can understand your your concern. I can't give you a good answer, uh, but there are a variety of reasons I think that God wanted it that way. I think if we go back, as I said, to the parables, uh, he specifically told them that he spoke to them, meaning the people in general, in parables. To the apostles, he spoke more clearly. Yes, Betty? clearly and, and that's why I teach because I learned I went to you know Catholic schools for 12 years and the good nuns who weren't always the most educated themselves did tell us a lot of the Bible stories um, but as I grew up I wanted to learn from an adult point of view and that's the whole purpose of teaching is that we have to bring our understanding of those same stories from a childlike, not childish, but childlike understanding up to an adult understanding and then apply them. Yeah. Uh, Bob, you had a question? Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, it is. Yes, and I'm glad you pointed that out. Uh, Bob's whole point here is that in this story that we just read, the important point of recognizing Jesus uh, came only during the breaking of the bread. In other words, a very uh, basic elementary fashion of our Mass. The Mass today, the essence of the Mass, has not changed in 2,000 years. The essence of the Mass concerns the consecration of normal bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ and the consuming, the consuming of that bread and wine. All right? That's important. Just the consecration in itself, um, without the consuming of the bread and wine, is not a complete sacrifice. And there was, in the early church, a lot of disagreement about that as well. Um, the form of the Mass and how it was to be presented. And the essence of, of the Mass has not really changed uh, in 2,000 years. A lot of the other details surrounding it did. Because, as you know, immediately after, and for a number of years after the resurrection, the Mass was held as part of the evening meal of the Jewish Christians. Right? Later on, then they began to separate the breaking of the bread ceremony from the evening meal. And then as the letters of Paul began to be circulated, they were added as to be read before the breaking of the bread. But it was still a very simple ceremony conducted by virtually anyone. And then as the Gospels were written, they were added. And then for a while people thought, well, perhaps we should have a little bit of uh, like confession or a petition or something in front. So they added the, the prayers that we now uh, have the confidior or uh, you know the I confess or the Lamb of God and a few simple prayers. And so that's how the Mass itself developed. But it was really um, an extension of the Jewish Passover Seder meal. And we were thinking about trying to have a Seder meal here like we used to do when this was a smaller group over at St. Rose. And I personally would cook two full legs of lamb and everyone else, particularly my friends up here, would contribute, and Connie back there always organized that along with her mother and her sister. And so it was a great ceremony, and we had a, a lot of fun. And then, of course, afterwards, we'd have good old American pie and coffee. Yes? Yes, exact words are, your exact words are correct, yes. 
Heaven is not a physical place. I mean, you can't go up and open the door to heaven, even though we talk about it. Uh, heaven is the presence of God. You are in the immediate presence of God, the visible presence of God. Okay? But that is your soul, your spirit. Your body at that time is lying in the grave or somewhere else. Okay? Um, at the end of the world, then our bodies will be reunited with our souls. But in the meantime, the soul, which is spiritual, can be in the presence of God, who is spiritual. And the presence of God to the soul is so complete and fulfilling that nothing else is needed. Not in the same way. Not in the same way. No. No. We are still mortals. The soul is immortal. And it's the soul when the mortal is left behind that then can approach God, assuming that uh, the soul is in a state of grace. Uh, we believe so, but there's no way to say, you know, yes, A or no. Yeah. Does that help you? Yeah. All right. Many people think that heaven is a place. You know, we keep looking up there. All right. Well, that up there idea came from the fact that God always appeared to Moses on the top of the mountain. So the people automatically looked up there. Well, God isn't up there. He's just all over. Yes? Absence of God. Well, I don't know about him. (laughs) Yes. That's right. It's just the opposite. Yes. Heaven is a place where we are in the presence of God. Hell is the absence of God. Maybe nothing else will change. I always tell this little story. Some of you probably, (laughs) Duff and Tilly have probably heard it a dozen times. It's a true little story, but in my mind, it's a good representation of what hell might be. When I was um, seven or eight years old, um, of course, this was during the height of the Depression and all of that, one of my classmates had a birthday party. And as I learned later, the mother said that this child could only invite six people, six children, to this birthday party because they just couldn't afford anymore. I was not one of the chosen. I was devastated, you know. You know how kids are at that time. Something like that is just, uh, they're uncontrollable. They just don't understand. Well, nothing changed in my life. You see, I just wasn't invited into the party. But that left me with anguish that I still remember. I forgive them, you know, obviously. Uh, you You don't carry that baggage around. But at the time, My mother tried to console me, you know, telling me all the details. 
nothing, nothing happened. But you see, what that left me was, hell is like that. So nothing could be different, but that person is not invited into and can never get into heaven, can never be united with God, or perhaps with his loved ones, his family, etc., who may have gotten inside. So you have this person that has now been ostracized from heaven, and He's going to wander from there to eternity, knowing he can never get in to heaven. Very good point. Yes. God never condemns anyone. The individual condemns himself by or herself by not partaking of the graces that God has handed out to all of us. And that's the sad part about it all, really. Uh, so many people say, well, you know, I, I just can't believe that there's a hell. I can't believe that God would ever condemn anybody. He doesn't. They condemn themselves by not taking advantage of the graces that God holds out to all of us. Yes? Yes. 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 Because in that second judgment, all will be judged. Good, bad, and indifferent. Jerry? It's a difficult concept to understand. When you say God is all merciful, He's all just, He's all good, uh, how can all of those come together? And how can He make a judgment to deserve somebody? If He's all merciful, and he wants to save this person's soul. On the other hand, he's all just. And he knows justice is involved here. Well, you, you've got a good point. But the justice part doesn't come down as a final act until the person dies. He's had all of this, the, the individual has had all of this time to take advantage of God's infinite mercy and, and love and all of those other things. But once person dies, that's it. And everybody in their own heart really knows that, whether they like to admit it or not. They don't have to be great theologians. They don't have to go to uh, these wonderful Bible studies. Uh, They don't have to really be a Catholic or anything else. But they know because the moral law is built within them. And the moral law is built within each an individual. I'm sorry. I guess I'm wondering sort of be like evolution in a sense where you're evolving from a certain stage and the struggle is part of the That's that's a good point.
Well, we don't know. The thing is, and I was thinking afterwards that in Maria's example or, or confusion, whatever, uh, why isn't it clearer? I think we'd have just as many people rejecting it, even if it was. Because for some reason or other, people do not want to be told the truth. You know, don't confuse me with the facts. I want to believe what I want to believe. And I think you would have the same amount of confusion and people splintering off in different beliefs because they didn't like this or that. Uh, you take the, the prophets. All of the prophets were murdered by their own people. Even though the, they knew that the prophets spoke for God, the people in power didn't like what they heard. And so they were all murdered. And that's how Christ himself was murdered in the same way as these various prophets because the Sadducees and the Pharisees, particularly the Pharisees, didn't like what he had to say. So I... I yes, Elisa? Yep, yep. God tells us in several places of the scriptures that we will all be held accountable, but it will be after we die, after the, uh, you know, the time for making recompense and so forth has changed, has ended. All right. And, yeah, it's an accountability. That's what's going to be uh, open to, to the world, you might say, at the end of time, in the final judgment. We'll all know why, you know, Susie got up there and, and uh, Pete didn't, you know. He got cast down there. Yes, sir? Well, you can't, yes, the gentleman just said that you know, mental illnesses can be the cause of many uh, things. If it is a case of somebody doing something, let's, let's use a hypothetical case of somebody who is in severe depression. Uh, quite often, severe depression, clinical depression, leads to suicide. All right. The church even recognizes that and gives them the benefit of the doubt that it was the mental illness that was the cause of their death rather than suicide. And so they eliminate or they do not use the word suicide. And that could be true for a number of other uh, serious sins or crimes that if they're caused by a condition beyond the ability of the person to know right from wrong, then he or she is not held liable. So you got a good point. Uh, but I think that's relatively rare. Uh, 
in proportion or percentage of the number of people. Yeah. Yes. It is, and in, in more so, far more so in Europe than here in America. Uh, the churches over there are, are practically empty. Uh, it's unfortunate, but you're right. The smarter the individual becomes, or thinks he becomes, then the less he has a need for God. And that is so unfortunate because our greatest theologians are very high-level thinkers, and they all come to the same conclusion that the smarter you are, the more you need God to balance the intellect. I just watched uh, an old movie here um, recently called A Man for All Seasons, uh, The Life of Thomas More, who was the Chancellor of England at the time of Henry VIII, when Henry VIII was trying to get his uh, marriage annulled, first of all, and then the divorce, and so forth and so on. The whole story hinges on the fact that this man was a man of uh, pure integrity. And he would not violate his own conscience and beliefs, even though it caused him his death. It really made a tremendous impression on me um, even though I had known the story for many years, seeing this movie just sort of reinvigorated that intelligence can be a great hindrance to our faith. Smarts, you might say, not so much intelligence, but smarts, knowledge, can be a great hindrance to our faith because we let it get in the way. And unfortunately, that's very sad that we can't uh, separate the two and have the knowledge and the intelligence lead us more to God rather than away from God. And yet that's what often happens. Let's talk. In a lot of cases today, people go to church, they expect to be entertained instead of going to church to worship. That's right. Yes. It's unfortunate, um, as Duff just pointed out, uh, they're more interested in being entertained than they are to worship. You often hear people say, well, I don't get anything out of going to church. Well, you're not supposed to get out of. That's not the reason you go there, unless you're dipping your hand into the, the basket. Uh, you go there to worship, to give something of yourself. And in the process of giving, you then receive. Yeah. But the idea of, of uh, oh, that's boring, I, I don't like going there, uh, those people have no idea of what worship really means. We go as a community to worship our Lord and God, who has done, just as this whole gospel has pointed out to us, uh, paid the price of eternal life. Let's leave it there for now. Um, I want to talk briefly about what you people would like to uh, discuss and study in the next session, which begins the last Tuesday in September. A lot of people have a misunderstanding of 
of um, that time period, the early church. And I think that, that would be wise. Yes, sir. When you talk about the early church, I think the Europeans had a big influence on the Boston and what we're saying. Yes. Then, uh, not so much, not so much in the writing, but in the translation. Yes, very much so. Um, particularly if you study the history of the King James Bible, there's a book out, uh, I forgot the name of it, I read it two or three years ago. The history of the King James Bible and all of the history surrounding it, uh, talks exactly about what you're saying. The struggle that went on in the English speaking world when the Bible was first translated into English, uh, and what led up to uh, the writing of the King James Version. Yeah. Now, not St. James, King James, all right? This is King James the first. Uh, but that's something that we can't get into. Anyone else got a, a different idea than, or something other than the Acts of the Apostles? I'd be interested in the first 300 years of the church. Well, the Acts of the Apostles don't cover all the 300 years, but all right, I'll give you a book called The Sword of Constantine. Sword of Sword of Constantine, yeah, I don't remember the author, but it covers a lot of that time period, yeah.